Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like Him. Uh, and now Terry will come and he's going to read for us this week, Revelation 3, 7 to 13, the letter to Philadelphia. Good morning. Write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, thus says the one, the holy one, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and who closes and no one opens. I know your works. Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one can close because you have but little power. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Note this, I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not, but are lying, I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and they will know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And my my new name, let anyone who has ears to hear Listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Praise be to God. All right, so we are here in Philadelphia. This is ancient Philadelphia. This is obviously not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, but this is the original city of brotherly love. Among a church that doesn't really have any power. And that's an interesting thought. This church has no authority, no power in their society. You know, something happened that was really kind of tragic in the history of the church. I mean, there was some good that came out of it, quite a bit of good actually, but really it, it, it was the beginning of, of the decline of the church for more than a thousand years. In 380 AD, the Roman Emperor Theodosius issued the Edict of Thessalonica. Now, you may have heard that the Emperor Constantine is the one who made Christianity the official religion of Rome, but that's not true. It actually came later under this Emperor Theodosius in the Edict of Thessalonica. When the Edict of Thessalonica came out, Christianity was then the official religion of the Roman Empire. Prior to that, in 313 AD, the Emperor Constantine, who supposedly had become a Christian himself under the influence of his mother, who was a Christian, had issued the Edict of Milan. The Edict of Milan is the one that said, hey, you know what? Christianity is a tolerated religion. We're going to allow the Christians to practice as they see fit, and we're no longer going to allow them to be persecuted anywhere within the empire. Prior to that, under various Roman emperors, Christianity had been either ignored or actively persecuted. But much of the time from the time of Jesus until the time of Constantine, the church was was undergoing persecution in some form at various parts throughout the empire. And then 
Constantine says, no, 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 we're going to tolerate these guys. We're going to allow them to practice. In fact, I'm one, my mom's one, so, you know, you can't really persecute the religion of the emperor himself, right? That's just not a good idea, right? So Constantine makes it official. But it's actually Theodosius later who is the one who makes it the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now, it was good that Constantine had issued the edict that allowed Christianity to be tolerated, that allowed Christianity to to be practiced without persecution. But what happened under Theodosius, when the Christianity became the power in the Roman Empire, the official religion of the Roman Empire, now you have the Christian movement, the Christian church wedded to political power. And this is what caused the decline of the church. Now, the church rose in power from here. The church rose in power and authority. But what happens is politics and power corrupts the church and corrupts the leadership so that of more than 1,200 years later, we have the Protestant Reformation that comes along to counter the power of the Roman church, the Roman church that had been corrupted by the political power that it owned over all the nations of its empire. And so we can't look at this wedding of Christianity to political power as anything but detrimental to the faith as anything but detrimental to the true faith of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the very one who said, I don't have armies. I don't come in that kind of power. I don't come in that kind of authority. Jesus' authority, Jesus' power is cosmic. Jesus' kingdom spreads through his rule and reign, not through the the command of armies and through the command of political power. But that's what happens to the Roman church, and that's why the Reformation must happen in the 1500s. That's why the Protestant Reformation occurs, to counter the corruption of the political power that had become what the church was all about. Now, throughout this time, there are, there are good movements within the church. There are restore, restoration movements that are trying to call people back to faithfully following Jesus, to separate themselves out from the political power of Rome. But they were never very powerful themselves. And here in Philadelphia is a church who has no political power, and yet which thrives. If you look at the places in the world today where the church is thriving, it's the places where the church has no cultural power. It's the places where the church has no political clout, no political authority at all. Look at the places where the church is declining. Look at places Western Europe the United States, places that have a long Christian history, but where Christianity has been wedded to political power, the church is in decline. Because the kind of power that the world wields is not the kind of power that Jesus calls us to. The kind of power that the church, that the world wields corrupts the intent of the gospel, corrupts the intent of Jesus Christ himself which actually undermines the authority of the governments, undermines the authority of the nations. The power of the gospel is specifically in the powerless people who own it. That's what we see here in Philadelphia. We looked last week at the church in Sardis, where the church, the Christians in Sardis, had tried to accommodate to the political power of the day. They had tried to accommodate to the culture of the day and to compromise their gospel. And what does Jesus say of the church in Sardis? You're dead compromise with the world and trying to take up the cultural power centers of the world will lead to the death of the church. Faithfulness to Jesus Christ 
faithfulness to him, even when we have no power, is what Jesus commends here in Philadelphia. So these these Christians are living in Philadelphia, and Jesus writes to them and he says, I'm the one who holds the key of David. I'm the one who opens and closes doors. And he says to them, you have little power. Though you have little power, you have been faithful to me, and therefore I'm going to put a door in front of you that no one can ever close. I'm going to open the door for you. Now, what's he getting at here? This this idea of Jesus having the key of David and opening the door for the people of Philadelphia is, is a direct connection to the fact that they have no power. What Jesus is telling them is, look, I'm the one with the authority. I'm the one with the power. Don't worry about what it's like to live in this world where you have no voice, where you have no power. Don't be concerned. Don't be afraid that you don't have a voice in what's happening in the power centers in Philadelphia. Because I'm the one with all the authority you'll ever need. In fact, I hold the key of David. Now, this goes back to Isaiah chapter 22. The prophet Isaiah, man, he had a rough time. God called Isaiah to be his prophet. You remember the beginning of Isaiah. God calls Isaiah, and, and he gives Isaiah this vision. It's almost like a dream. Isaiah's there, and he's before the throne of God, and he's seeing some really terrifying stuff. Like, he's seeing seraphim on the side of God. So he sees God on his throne, which he can't really look at because God is just too bright and too overwhelming. And then next to God, just to emphasize how overwhelming God is, there are these, these spiritual beings, these seraphim, who have six wings. And we're told that with two they fly, but then with two they cover their legs and their feet, and with two they cover their face. They're covering themselves, shielding themselves from the glory of God. That's how powerful God's very presence is. And here Isaiah is standing in front of the throne of God with the seraphim on either side. These holy angelic beings are covering themselves from the glory of God, and Isaiah is just there unshielded. And he's like, he falls on his face as though dead. He falls on his face prostrate before the throne of God because he just can't take the glory of God unshielded. I mean, imagine, right, when the angels are shielding themselves, like this is not a place you want to be standing. But Isaiah's there, and God says, Isaiah, I want you to go to my people whose ears will be closed, who won't listen to you, and I want you to share my message with them. So God is telling Isaiah directly, look, I want you to go and talk to people on my behalf, and they're going to shut you out. They're not going to listen to you. Now, I mean, really, who wants that job, right? Who's signing up for that? Yes, Lord. This is Isaiah. Now, at the beginning of this, when God says, who will go for me? Isaiah is the one who says, yeah, I'll go. Okay, I'm in. And then God says, by the way, they're not going to listen to you. You're going to be my mouthpiece, but their hearts are going to be shut to you. And so this is the mission that Isaiah has. He's supposed to go among the people of God, and God is going to give him criticism, critique, for his own people. And the people are going to reject the criticism. They're going to reject the critique. But all too often, all through the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is calling God's people back to righteousness. He's calling them back to following Yahweh, to following their God, to being faithful to him. And here in Isaiah chapter 22, we read about this guy named Eliakim. Right, Eliakim is God's appointed man to lead the temple. The, the, the temple steward is someone who has not been faithful to Yahweh. The guy who's kind of in charge of the operations of the temple hasn't been faithful to Yahweh. And so Yahweh's saying through Isaiah, 
I want Eliakim to be my man, and I'm going to give Eliakim the key of David. That is, I'm going to give him the authority of King David, the greatest king Israel ever had, the one that everybody looks up to, the one that all other kings are supposed to be like. Yeah, I'm going to give Eliakim David's authority. And that's what's meant by the key of David. And Eliakim is going to reform the temple. He's going to reform the nation. Only it doesn't really happen. Right? The, the prophecy that Isaiah makes about Eliakim coming in and reforming the nation and things being righteous and good again never really happens. And so Jesus comes in here and he says to the Philadelphian church, he says to these Christians in Philadelphia, that key of David that, that Eliakim was supposed to hold and to use to reform the nation, to bring people back to righteousness, that's my key. I have the authority of David, Jesus says. I have the authority of the king of Israel. I am the master, the king, the Lord over God's people. I'm the one who tells you where you can go and what you can do. I'm the one who opens doors and shuts them for you. I am the one who orders your steps, Christians of Philadelphia, and you have been faithful to me, and thank you for that. Jesus doesn't say those words exactly, but the tone of this letter to these Philadelphian Christians who have been suffering is, is just that. It's a thank you from Jesus. It's a gratefulness from Jesus. It's, it's a good job. You're doing so well. And if you're one of these Christians in Philadelphia, you have no political power, you have no cultural power, you have no influence in anything that's going on around you, you've been kicked out of the synagogues, you've been kicked out of the temples, you have no friends anymore except for your other followers of Jesus. Aren't those the words that you most need? Jesus to look at you and say, good, good job, well done. You've been faithful to me in all of your powerlessness. You've been faithful to me, though it has been painful for you. Thank you. And then he's reassuring them with this language of the key of David that I am thanking you and I am the one who matters. My authority, my power, my voice, that's the one that matters. Don't be concerned with the governments of the world. Don't be concerned with what's happening in Philadelphia. Don't, don't be concerned with the fact that you've been kicked out of the synagogue. Because I am the authority. I'm the power. I'm the one whose opinion of you matters, Jesus says. That's the imagery that we're getting. And he's saying, now I'm going to put an open door in front of you and no one else can shut it. Right? When you're powerless, you get doors shut in your face all the time. When you're powerless, the doors of the world are shut to you. You can't go there. You can't sit in this place. You can't speak with these people. You don't have access to this. You don't have access to that. When you have no power in the world, it feels like all the doors are shut. When you're struggling, when you don't know where the next thing is coming from, when, when, you, when you don't have a home of your own, when, when you, when you are, are up against all of the struggles of the world, it feels like every door you step into is shut. And finally, when you find an open door, you rejoice. Finally, when, when one person opens that door and says, please, come on in, it is like balm to your soul. And sometimes that's all it takes. It's one open door to rekindle all of the hope that you had lost from all the closed doors in your life. 
It takes one open door for you all of a sudden to be like, yes, yes, I am a person. Yes, I am worthy of dignity. Yes, someone does love me. Yes, there is a hope and a future for me because honestly, I didn't see it a minute ago. But you opened the door for me and now I know my worth and I know my value and I can see a future for myself. That's all it takes. You know, I, was, I used to work for a rescue mission and, and I used to work with the homeless and uh, shelters and things. And there were so many times, so many times people would come to us and all they needed was one win. All they needed was one win. But we're talking about people who had done nothing but had been faced with nothing but losses for years, for decades even. And it felt like every time they tried to get ahead, every time they tried to do something, they hit some roadblock, they hit some wall, they hit some closed door. And, and they finally get to the point where, where they just don't know what to do. If you finally, when you've faced that many losses and that many closed doors, you get to the point of total hopelessness. And there were so many times when I got to sit in the seat and I got to be the one who opened the door for them and to see the light and to see the joy and to see the hope rekindle back in someone's eyes because I opened a door for them that had been open for me my entire life. Because I was able to give them something that that seems so trivial and so simple to me, but for them was life itself. All of the things that so many of us take for granted every single day, there are people right around us, there are people in our world, there are neighbors who, they don't have those doors open for them. You've got neighbors right now, they could live in a really nice house or they could be living on a cardboard box in the street, but you've got neighbors right now who feel like every single door they've ever tried to walk through has been closed and has been shut down. You've got neighbors and friends and family right now who are at the point of hopelessness because they feel like all they've had are losses and closed doors and you might be the one that God is calling to say, open that door. You might be the one today that Jesus is saying, look, I've got the key of David. You have my authority. You have my name. You can open the door for them. And it may feel like something totally trivial and totally small for you that will make all the difference in the life of someone else. And that's who Jesus is for these Philadelphian Christians. They feel like they've had every door shut before them. They feel like they have no influence, no authority, no power in the world. Like they've had nothing but losses. And here Jesus is, the Lord of the universe, the king of everything, their savior and their master saying, I'm opening the door to God for you. I am opening the door to the throne of God for you. How hopeful is that? How hopeful is it to be able to open the door for someone and just say, welcome into the throne of God's love. Welcome into the glory of God's presence. Welcome into a place where you are safe and you are cared for and you are loved. Welcome to the place that will rekindle hope for you. That's what Jesus is doing in opening this door for them. He's opening the door into God's presence so that they can know the power of their king, so they can know the love and the affection of the God who died for them, who rose for them, and who calls them his own. And so Jesus goes on here. He says, I'm going to open this door for you. And by the way, those people who have been putting you down, those people who have been persecuting you, I'm going to make them fall on their knees before you. I'm going to open their eyes to see the grace and the mercy that I have given to you. 
and they're going to be envious of it. They're going to fall right down before you. And this is what he says. Note this. Right? This, is a, this is a parenthesis. This is an aside. This is Jesus giving them a little extra hope here. Note this. I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not, but are lying, I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and they will know that I have loved you because you have kept my command to endure. I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. Jesus moves from that image of the open door, that hopeful open door into God's presence that he's giving them into this this note about what he's going to do to the people who have been putting them down. And we have to make a note here about this synagogue of Satan. What, what does this mean, right? Are these just bad Jewish people? No. This is everybody who has rejected Jesus as Lord. You see, here in the New Testament, there's no distinction. There, there, are, there are not multiple peoples of God. And the offense of the gospel, the offense of the message that these Philadelphian Christians have been staying faithful to is that there is only one family of God. There is only one kingdom of God. There is only one people of God, and that is those who are united through Jesus Christ. There's no other. It's not as though we have Christians over here and Jews over here as separate peoples and kingdoms of God. There are those who have rejected Jesus, and there are those who follow Jesus. This is the scandal of the gospel. This is the stumbling block of the good news of Jesus. That though his arms are wide open and though his kingdom is wide open to anybody who will pledge allegiance to him, you must still pledge allegiance to him. And so when these Christians begin in the synagogues, they begin by worshiping in the synagogues. That's how the church started. We've been over this multiple times. The church begins by worshiping in the synagogues because Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He is the king of God's people. He holds the key of David. He's the king of Israel. When the Christians begin worshiping in the synagogue and eventually the Jews who are in the synagogue realize, hey, these Jesus followers are different from us. They're not the same as us. There's something different about them. Jesus looks at the Christians who are ejected from the synagogue and say, you are the true people of God. And so those who remain are a synagogue of Satan, a synagogue of the opposition to God and his kingdom, the synagogue of the opposition to Jesus Messiah. And that's what Jesus calls them. And yeah, it's offensive. It's hard. I think I've told the story before once, but... I was teaching through Revelation for a Bible study. I was teaching at the rescue mission. And we had some, uh, some Muslims within our community, some Muslim guys, some who were a nation of Islam, some who were, who were Islamic. And they were coming to our Bible study. It was great. We had a great conversation. We had a great time. But then we get to Revelation chapter 1. And we're talking through Revelation chapter 1. And I don't remember, somebody asked me a question. I can't remember what it was. But my answer was, if your God did not come to earth as Jesus Christ and die for you, then your God does not exist. Or your God is not the God of the universe. And unfortunately, these Muslim, these Muslim guys were like, whoa, hold up. That's, wait a minute, what? We thought you were cool, Brandon. We, we thought you were good. And I was like, I still love you. I still care for you. You're still a wonderful human. But that's what the scripture says. And I can't, I can't go against that. 
And, and unfortunately, these guys didn't come back to the Bible study because they knew that I, I'm, we're not on board with that will we all worship the same God. We don't. The fact is, the truth is, if your God did not become Jesus Christ, live, die, and rise for you, if he is not your Savior, then the God that you worship is not the God of the universe. He's not the God who is. This is the stumbling block of the gospel. This is the offense of the cross. And this is the offensive message that got the Christians booted from the synagogues. And this is what leads to all of their cultural estrangement. This is what leads to all of their being kicked out of the centers of power. This is why they feel like they have no open doors before them. Because they've been faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've been faithful to this offensive message. And to them, Jesus says, look, I'm going to display my love for you so publicly that others will come and bow before you. Wanting that. God says, I'm going to display my approval and affection for you so publicly that others will bow in their desire for it. This is the future for the church. Though you may feel powerless, though you may feel like culturally you just don't fit in, though you may feel ostracized and estranged, and though you may feel like sharing this offensive gospel of Jesus is just so hard and it, and it causes so much opposition, Jesus says, but it is my love on display for the world. The gospel that you carry, the good news of Jesus that you carry with you, this offensive message is my love on display for a broken and dying world. It is the message that you must share in love. And when you display my love, when my love is, is on display for you, the people of the world will come and bow in desire for it. They will want it. Jesus is reassuring them, don't be concerned, don't be afraid when you're ostracized. Because it is my love for you that matters. It is my adoption of you that matters. And he says, I'll also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. And then he says, I am coming soon. Now, what does this mean? We, we, a lot of people read this and they're like, okay, is that like the tribulation period? Is this like the period of time at the end of all things when we're like super tested and everything's really hard? Um, I, I don't think so. I think the hour of testing that is coming is connected directly to the next statement he makes, I am coming soon. When Jesus comes, he comes to judge. That's what he's referring to when he's talking about the synagogue of Satan and the people bowing down. When Jesus comes, he comes and he will judge us. And there will only be two people before Jesus when he comes in judgment. There will be those who have surrendered themselves to King Jesus, those who have allied themselves, given their allegiance to him, and there will be those who haven't. And those who are given over to Jesus, will be welcomed into the kingdom. And those who are not will be cast out. And Jesus says, to those who conquer, to those who are faithful to me, who endure in their faithfulness to me, those who are true to my gospel and my word, those who are my kingdom citizens, in the day of trial of my judgment, you will be safe. You will be protected. You will be held. In the day of my judgment, you who have been faithful to me, there will be no judgment for you. 
You see, God's judgment will fall on everyone on earth. And it will fall either on me or on Jesus. But God's judgment will come. And the good news of the gospel, the free offer of the gospel, is that Jesus has already taken all of God's judgment for me. He has already received all of the brunt and the weight of God's anger at sin, of God's judgment. He's already received all of the evil that the world has to offer and killed it in the cross. And if I want to escape God's judgment on myself, all I need to do is give my life over to the one who already took God's judgment for me. This is the free offer of the gospel. This is, that, this is why, though the message is offensive that there is only one people of God united through Jesus Christ, entry into that kingdom could not have been made easier for us. We only need reach out and accept the gift that Jesus has given us. We only need reach out and accept the judgment that he already took on the cross and allow him to be in our stead. Allow him to take the brunt of God's judgment so that we, like these Philadelphian Christians, can be spared in the trouble that is to come, so that we are spared the judgment of God and we are welcomed in. So Christian, hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. Hold on to your faithfulness to Jesus. Stay faithful to him, no matter what it looks like from the world, no matter how hard or difficult it may seem. Our powerlessness on this earth is nothing in comparison to the power of our King, our Master, our Lord Jesus, and the power of the Holy Spirit of God that lives inside everyone who follows Him. Our powerlessness in this world is utterly eclipsed by the power of the God who calls us His own. He's the one who will see us through. And Jesus ends here now, to the one who conquers, I'll make a pillar in the temple of my God and he will never go out again. Now, I think Jesus here is making a play on the history of Philadelphia. Back in 17 AD, a huge earthquake just ravaged this region of the world, this region that we call Turkey today, Asia Minor. And three of the churches that Jesus uh, writes to here were particularly affected. The church in Sardis, the church in Philadelphia, and the church in Laodicea were particularly affected by the earthquake of 17 AD that just leveled these cities. And the Roman government had to come in and help them to rebuild. They had to help Sardis rebuild, had to help Philadelphia rebuild. They came in and tried to help Laodicea, but Laodicea was so wealthy, they were like, thanks, but no thanks, we got this, and they rebuilt their own city. So here in Philadelphia, the city had been leveled by this earthquake in 17 AD, just 80 years before this writing, 80 years before John is writing. And since then, they had had aftershocks and smaller earthquakes. So the city of Philadelphia was very unstable to the point that by the time Paul John is writing, people had moved out of the city and they were kind of living on the outskirts and they didn't even want to go in. Like they didn't want to go to the marketplace because they were afraid something was going to fall down. They, they saw the cracks in the buildings and they were like, oh no, uh, let's, let's not walk by that one because it could fall on us at any given moment. Or there could be another aftershock and this building could come down. So people didn't want to be in the city. The pillars of the city had fallen down. The pillars of the city had not held it up in the face of the earthquake. And to these Christians who live in this city who's been rocked by earthquakes, 
Jesus says, I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple of God, a pillar that will not fall down. Look around you at the city that's crumbling. That's not the city of God, Philadelphian Christians. My pillars are not weak. My pillars will not fall. No earthquake can take down the pillar of God. And so Jesus says to these weak Christians in this weak city, you will be a strong pillar in the temple of my God if you are only faithful to me. And so endure. And then he gives them one greater blessing. Like, if that's not enough, Jesus says, hold up, there's more. This is like the end of a price is right, you know? Like, there's more, and here comes the big reveal. Jesus says, I'm going to give you God's name. I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple of God, and I'm going to call you by God's very name. Now, this is another play on Philadelphia. Philadelphia had, a, had an identity crisis of sorts. It was the newest city of these seven cities, and its name would change multiple times. So in 17 AD, the earthquake comes. Philadelphia gets squashed. The emperor comes in. The empire comes in, helps them rebuild. So they renamed the city in Neo-Caesarea in honor of Caesar, of the emperor. And then a few years later, they also renamed the city. I can't even remember what the other name was. But they, it gets another name just a few years later. So now the city of Philadelphia has multiple names. And so it's always getting renamed based on the emperor, based on who was benefiting it at the moment. And so to these Christians who live in this city with this constantly changing name, God, Jesus says to them, I'm going to give you the name of God. I'm going to give you the unchanging name. And remember what a name means in this ancient Near Eastern culture. Remember what a name means in this ancient world. A name is your identity. It identifies who you are down to your core. It tells you your character traits. It tells you who you're going to be. It tells you everything about you. And so Jesus says, I'm going to give you the name of God. The unchanging, holy, perfect, pure, beautiful, powerful, unending name of God. And I'm going to call you by that name. And not only God's name, I'm going to seal you with God's name, and then I'm going to give you the name of God's city, not the name of Philadelphia. Philadelphia is a nice name, city of brotherly love. Philos, Adelphia, the city where brothers love one another. And yet Jesus says, I'm going to give you an even better name than that. I'm going to give you the name of the new Jerusalem, which means God's peace. That's what Jerusalem means. It comes from the name of God, Yahweh, and shalom, peace, or God's wholeness. So the name Jerusalem says God's peace, Yahweh's peace to you. Jesus says, I'm going to name you with the name of the new Jerusalem, God's very city, God's peace and wholeness for you, his provision. You're going to be a pillar. You're going to be named with the name of God. You're going to be giving the unending name of the new Jerusalem. And finally, Jesus says, I'm going to give you my new name. Now, nobody knows what that is. Right? Nobody really knows what that means. But it's Jesus giving us his own name, giving us all of his character, all of his holiness, everything that he is. Every time we have looked at one of these gifts of Jesus at the end of these letters, we've concluded that the gift is really Jesus himself. Right? Every time we look at these gifts at the end of each of these seven letters, what we see is that what God is actually giving us is Jesus He's giving us himself because what greater gift is there, right? What more could you get in this world than God's 
presence. What more could you get than Jesus' own name? What more could you receive than Jesus' love and acceptance? What more is there? And the answer is there's not. There's nothing more we can get. And so the question for us is, do you feel powerless? Do you feel like every door has been shut in your face? Are you afraid of sharing the gospel because you're afraid of its offense to people? How do you feel about the way that you've been living? How do you feel about your your voice in the world? How do you feel about the opportunities that have been laid in front of you? Do you feel powerless? Good. Good. Because it is in our weakness that God's strength is made perfect. It is in our weakness in our inability to provide for ourselves, in our inability to make a way for ourselves, in in our inability to raise up and to shout our voices and be heard that Jesus shines through us, that the strength of God is, is mediated through us. It is in our own inability. It is in our insufficiency that the sufficiency of God shines brightest. Now, Christian, we ought to be taking every opportunity we can to stand up in the public square and proclaim the gospel and to speak the truth, but also to know that when we do so, opportunities may be taken away, doors may be shut, but that Jesus will open the door for us. We must put all of our faith and trust in the Lord who calls us to his service. We must put all our faith and trust in the Holy Spirit, not in our own ability to convince other people, not in our own ability to advance the kingdom of God, not in our own ability to bring about by force what only comes through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus. We must trust in the power of our God and his Holy Spirit to do what we cannot and not try to force it on our own. Because our good and powerful and beautiful God will make sure that his purposes are done in the world. He will not fail. And if we trust in him, neither can we. Even if it looks like in the moment we might be. Even if it looks like in the moment we might be in a weak place. Even if for the moment it looks like we might be failing. Our God cannot and will not fail us. Our God cannot and will not let his kingdom fall. So I want to encourage you today. If you feel powerless, you are in a position of extreme power because your faith is in the one who rules all things. As long as you put your faith in Jesus Christ, as long as you receive God's Holy Spirit living within you, there is nothing that can stop you. There is nothing that can stop the kingdom of our God. And so go in confidence in him. Not in confidence in the people who will listen to you, not in confidence in your reception by other people, not in the confidence of of having power and prestige in the world, or not in confidence in your bank account or in the size of your home or in your job, not in the confidence of the people who, who praise you and who look up to you, but in the confidence of the God who will see you through, in the confidence of the God who gave his life to give you yours in the confidence of the God who took his own judgment on the cross so that you could be free in him, made powerful in him. Today, know, know that nothing can stop a follower of Jesus and nothing can stop the church of Christ in fulfilling his mission. He will see us through.
if only we rely on him and him alone. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for this letter to this church in Philadelphia. Thank you for their powerlessness. I pray, Lord, that today all of our confidence, all of our trust is wrapped up in you and who you are and not who we are. I pray today, Lord, that we would own the identity that you have given us, the name that you have called us by, the name of our God, the name of the new Jerusalem, the name of Jesus Christ. I pray today that we would confidently hold on to that identity. We would confidently hold on to your purposes and we would boldly walk forward in the truth of the gospel no matter how many doors are shut on us because we know that the one who holds the key of David, the true master, the true king, the true Lord of all has opened the door into God's presence for us. Let us confidently hold fast to that truth as you work through us, Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.